If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Sounds like he's having a bit of trouble getting over that hump there, doesn't it? It's like you're the first car in a roller coaster, and you go over the edge, and then all of a sudden, oh, you feel the back one pull you back. You know what I'm saying? Okay, maybe not. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, man, what a weekend! And you just gotta, you just kind of shake your head and wonder uh, what is happening in the world and where it is all going. And you know, we need some really strong leadership uh, and 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 some sort of guiding light. Uh, post Donald Trump to kind of uh, get us through this. And because back in the day when Donald Trump was uh, taking over the United States of America, uh, who used to sort of be the lifeguard for everybody and keep an eye on what was going on, then it was, you know, Donald's like, no, we're out. Everybody's up for themselves. You're not paying us enough. And, you know, the world order took advantage of that. And uh, we're seeing changes in that today uh, and over the course of the weekend with the just horrific uh, images and, 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 and stories that we're hearing uh, coming out of Israel. So we'll try to keep you updated on that as uh, best we can and uh, and try to offer um, you know it's 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 just one of those situations where in this country we have people on both sides of this but let's remember uh, Israel is a democracy and surrounded by a lot that aren't so it's a it's a really really tense situation that's happening there now I want to play a couple of clips here's what the Prime Minister had to say and and I must admit i've been pretty critical of our prime minister for being nothing more than um well a walmart greeter and when he did have to stand up and say something very firm finally he did it because i don't think i've ever heard him say this before or with this tone of voice usually it's um you know uh, some sort anyway i'll leave it at that here's what the prime minister had to say in regard to what is happening hamas Terrorists aren't a resistance. They're not freedom fighters. They are terrorists. And no one in Canada should be supporting them, much less celebrating them. The glorification of death and violence and terror has no place anywhere, including and especially here in Canada. As if we're somehow immune to it? I don't know. Uh, Pierre Polyev, the leader of the opposition on all of this. Hamas does not speak for the Palestinian people. It does not speak for Muslims. And it surely does not speak for Canadians. And that is why I unreservedly condemn any and all who took part in the disgusting celebrations that we have seen on our streets. Uh, which was another angle to all of this. Uh, well, others were horrified. Others were celebrating uh, what was going on. And and that is something that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding um, with this and what is going on in other parts of the world 
and obviously reaction here uh, in North America, Canada specifically. But yeah, I, I must admit, I I was surprised, and I think a lot of people were, where uh, people took to the streets and, and celebrated this um, this tragedy, this horrific uh, invasion per se, and um, you know, and even a, a leader of QP coming out and and uh, and speaking in favor. So it, it's just, it, it's a very bizarre time, a very bizarre scenario. Uh, and again, we'll keep our eye on the, uh, on the situation moving forward, but throw that on the pile of things that we're uh, concerned about uh, today. All right. Uh, what else we got going on? Oh, coming up next, Sean Frazier is going to be joining us, member of parliament for Central Nova, Nova Scotia, federal minister of housing, infrastructure and community. Uh, talk about a housing announcement in the hammer today. Uh, also, Daryl Burke is going to be joining Joining us from Ipsos, uh, on that note, a growing majority of, of Canada, uh, Canadians believe owning a home has become a privilege uh, that is only to be afforded by the rich. And this is what happens. And, you know, and, and I'm sure the housing minister will use the word affordable housing. Uh, please don't even talk to me about affordable housing until you've been building for 20 years. And then maybe we'll have affordable housing as the supply perhaps uh, is even with the demand as opposed to vice versa. Nothing, nothing is going to be affordable until uh, politicians get off the rear ends and start building what they should have been building in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. All right, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, with the latest cost of the Tofino vacation for uh, the Trudeau family, here we go again, uh, and some changes coming to hockey rinks this uh, fall that uh, we'll tell you about. And good news, uh, we were talking earlier this morning, oh, man, it looks like there's going to be a shutdown and the General Motors strike um, uh, the negotiations are going to uh, end with people walking off uh, the job and such, and, and it looked that way. But now it appears that there is a tentative uh, agreement between uh, General Motors and Unifor, which is great news to hear, and I'm sure we'll get the, uh, more on that coming up a little later on uh, through the course of the afternoon as that uh, progresses. Also, the Chamber of Commerce going to be joining us a little later on. Talk about the city's nighttime economy. I don't think about that. That's something that the city of Ottawa doesn't have. You ever been there? They roll up the sidewalks, seriously, at like 4.30 in the afternoon. And now that all the government workers are staying home, there's nobody there. And there is a a very vibrant city and business in all major cities after uh, 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock. We'll talk about that with the Chamber of Commerce coming up a little later on. Uh, the government of Canada and the city of Hamilton today announced they have reached an agreement to fast track over 2,600 housing units over the next three years. Uh, this work will help spur the construction of over uh, 9,000 homes over uh, the next decade. To talk more about all of this, Sean Frazier, member of Parliament for Central Nova, Nova Scotia, Federal Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Communities, and is here now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So obviously this is good news anytime uh, we're hearing uh, of more housing units being sped up in a time where obviously uh, there's a shortage. Before we get to what's happened here, Sean, what have we learned from all of this? Because, you know, I'm reading we have reached an agreement to fast track. Why do we need to fast track? Why are what what did, what have we learned from all of this? One of the things that I've uh, learned to to take your your lead on this is is to since I've been appointed to this position is that although the housing crisis that we're living through is significant and will take some time to solve, there are solutions out there because ultimately the challenges we're wrestling with 
include very specific obstacles that we need to overcome. In the case of today's announcement, it's really targeting reforms at the municipal level because for many years, uh, cities and communities across Canada have had practices that sometimes, although they may have been intended uh, for, for noble purposes, actually interfere with the ability to build the homes that our neighbours need uh, to solve the crisis. Uh, in too many communities, it's actually not legal to build the homes on properties that already exist uh, that would help us address the housing supply shortage. There are many other challenges, along with a lack of investment in affordable housing for many decades uh, that we kickstarted again in 2017, along with uh, increased costs to builders and a number of other features. Uh, but if we actually address the specific problems, we can make meaningful progress, as was the case in Hamilton today. It seems that for the longest time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, this is a, a long, drawn-out, self-inflicted pro- uh, uh, problem, that building was a bad word. How has that vision changed? I mean, you know, for many time, for, for many years, it was, we, we can't have that urban sprawl, we, it's all about the environment, it's this, whatever, and now all of a sudden, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, we find ourselves in, in literally a crisis. Um, uh, moving forward with this, how, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen, that this continues uh, uh, to progress? Well, part of the answer has to be understanding the problem and advancing solutions to the challenges that do exist. Uh, When it comes to uh, the the multi-decade problem that you've laid out, I completely agree that it's it's of our own making as a society. In fact, uh, federal governments of both liberal and conservative persuasion over my lifetime have chosen not to invest in affordable housing. So it's not just what we're not building, but the kind of things that we're not building. Uh, If we continue to invest in affordable housing projects, if we put incentives uh, on the table to change the way that cities build, uh, and we also uh, change the financial landscape for home builders, we we can get uh, communities building. Uh, But my sense is people now are living through the experience of not having enough homes. And it presents itself in horrible ways. Young people who have an income can't find a place to live. Uh, Seniors who are looking to downsize are talking about living in a community other than the one where their grandkids are being raised. Students have to commute sometimes an hour to go to class. Uh, These are not outcomes we have to accept if we embrace building and realize that it's not counterproductive to social, economic, or environmental goals, but is going to be required for us to, to reach them. Uh, is that vision changing? Are we finally realizing that? Because many will say it's either one thing or the other. It's all about infield. It's not about expansion, um, uh, that sort of thing. But really, any housing expert I've talked to, this is a mixed bag. It's going to require everything. Well, my view is that we need to pull every lever that we have at our disposal. Uh, but I don't think we need to compromise uh, environmental goals uh, in order to achieve that. And I do think we need to have some focus to make sure we're building for middle-class Canadians and low-income Canadians as, as we try to build things out. But when I look at the opportunity to uh, to build more sustainably, building near public transit lines that we're already funding uh, with other levels of government, uh, making sure that people have access to the services and places of work that they want to go can actually help improve environmental outcomes. Making sure we're investing in the kind of infrastructure whether it's active transportation, public transit, or water and wastewater, that will deliver both uh, an economic or or environmental return, uh, but also make a community more livable for for more residents. Uh, So I don't view these things to be mutually exclusive. I actually think if we apply multiple lenses to our decision-making process, we can come up with policies that will help foster a culture of building 
that actually helps uh, achieve the other goals that we set for ourselves as communities as well. Uh, Ipsos has a new poll out. Uh, nearly three-quarters of those surveyed agreed that uh, owning a home is only for the rich. Two-thirds don't think they'll ever get one. Um, I, I'm a 60-year-old guy, but I'm just blown away that that's where we are right now. Look, there's there's no question the uh, the culture has changed. When I talk to a lot of young people, uh, they're not even focused on one day owning a home. They're focused on where their next month's rent is going to come from. Mm. Uh, what we need to do is restore a level of affordability to the housing sector more broadly. Uh, having now examined the problem uh, in depth on a daily basis for the last number of months, uh, I can tell you that we can make things better. It will take some time. But we're already starting to see progress of some of the policies we're rolling out with a renewed focus on on housing. As a result of uh, the Housing Accelerator Fund, we're not just seeing Hamilton change the way it's going to build homes by allowing more density by building near transit. We're seeing it in London and Calgary and Vaughan and Halifax and Charlottetown. Every part of the country is starting to see reforms. After we made the announcement about removing the GST on home construction, we had companies announce 5,000 new projects in Toronto and Saskatoon and Ottawa, another 3,000 in Toronto, another announcement from another developer of an extra 1,000. And I'm seeing these things play out. This is not to say the job is done by a long stretch, but we've administered the medicine and it's starting to show early signs of progress, which gives me optimism. So to the young people who feel like you've been left out of the market, uh, we're trying to get Canada building as quickly as we can to help you not only this month, but to restore some normalcy to the market. So you might have a hope at owning a home one day if that's what you choose to make work for your family. Sean Frazier with us, Member of Parliament for Central Nova, Nova Scotia, Federal Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Community. Sean, thanks so much for the time. Be well. A pleasure to be with you, and congratulations to the city on today's big announcement. All right, I'm still having a hard time accepting this, and I remember uh, talking, I've talked to a couple of academics who have suggested, you know, the kids better get used to the fact that, um, you know, this isn't the way it is anymore. You're not going to have what your parents have. And I'm thinking, man, you say that to my kids, they'll kick you in the shins. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's really sad how we've just come to accept this and the whole housing shortage because it is a completely self-inflicted wound. It's what, it's what happens when you don't build for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And because it's bad for the environment, it's bad for this, it's bad for that. It's bad for everything except the, you know, 1.1 million immigrants and students that are coming in every year, uh, and, and making the crunch even worse. And, and to me, Stats like this, like this is not Canada. This is not what our country was about, is about. A growing majority of Canadians believe owning a home has become a privilege only the rich can afford. Three quarters of those surveyed agreeing. Also, Ipsos poll saying two thirds of Canadians have given up on even owning a home. Um, man, I, I just, I, I can't imagine that because at the end of the day, it's kind of everyone's dream on building their own uh, personal wealth and raising a family and having a place to go out back and have a barbecue if you want. Uh, and now because of lack of planning, because of a self-inflicted wound, because of movements where we don't have houses for people, it just seems bizarre. Uh, let's bring in Daryl Brooker, CEO of Ipsos, and is with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott, sitting in my house. Uh, exactly. So um, at the end of the day, are are people, um, um, are, are, are they accepting of this? Or Because to me, as a 60-year-old guy, it's like, man, this is unacceptable. 
no, it is unacceptable and people aren't accepting of it. And uh, it's not just the, uh, the, the, the fact that people can't find a place to live. It's that that thing that they've always been told would be their birthright. If they did everything right, they went to school, they got good grades, they went out and they worked hard, they saved, uh, you know, they kept their noses clean that one of the things that would come their way would be a middle-class lifestyle and a home that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. And those people are now caught in a situation in which what was promised is not being delivered. Uh, we just had the housing minister on, uh, federal housing minister, and said, you know, they're uh, providing the, these incentives, accelerator things for, for communities to get going. Uh, they're building as fast as they can. They're streamlining. Uh, but it's going to take some time. That's not much help to those that are in this position right now. Is this a lost, a lost generation, do you think, Daryl? Well, it's, this is something that's been building and really seems to have accelerated since the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, a combination of, uh, of uh, uh, two things, really, a lot of people moving now to places in which housing is not necessarily available at the, at the volume, I think, that uh, governments or builders uh, had, had, had been anticipating, combined with a huge escalation in the number of people that are, that are immigrating, which, by the way, are also moving to all the same places. So, uh, yeah, it's created a, a kind of a perfect storm of, of difficulties that we really haven't seen, in, in, at least in my adult life, that I can recall. Is our vision of housing now changed or changing? Because uh, at one time it was we used to be very proud of building, and then and, you know it kind of was a bad word for the last twenty years. Are we finally realizing that we failed here, and that, that this is something that we must do? Well, governments, I think, are starting to move now, but as you said, you know, maybe too little, too late. Um, and, you know, we've seen with the Greenbelt issue, somebody trying to move on and getting it in trouble. We've seen the federal government announcing these types of incentives, but, you know, they've been in power for almost eight years now or slightly longer. Mm. And, uh, you know, it took them till then to, to figure this out. They're also the people who've been presiding over the expansion of immigration. So it seems like everybody's playing catch up at the moment and the Canadian public and particularly, as I said before, middle-class Canadians um, are the ones who are really feeling left out here because housing has always been an issue on the, on the national agenda. But normally what we are talking about is low income housing and, and homelessness. Mm -hmm. but that's not what we're talking about anymore. Now we're talking yeah. about finding a, you know, a nice little commuter, uh, you know, bungalow just outside of Hamilton. That's what people want. And that's what seems to be in very short supply. It's funny, too, when you talk to politicians, Daryl, like Sean Frazier, I, I was just moments ago, uh, it's all about affordable housing, affordable housing, which to me, that word should just be taken out of the equation because there is no such thing as affordable housing because there's a lack of supply. And until there is a much greater lack of supply, there will be affordable, uh, affordability issues. Isn't that accurate? Yeah, I, I, the problem, I think, it, it, with the whole affordable housing rhetoric is that it, it assumes that what we're talking about here is low-income families that can't yeah. find a place to live. Yes, we are. To a certain extent, that's that's very much still there. But what we're really talking about is people who feel that if the market was operating correctly, they should be able to afford a house. But mm -hmm. something's not working, which which pushes them outside of the marketplace. Since when did somebody describe a million-dollar home as an affordable house? Yeah, yeah. And that segment of the middle class is a massive segment of the population, which everybody talks about the middle class and those trying to join it. But it seems everyone's letting it rot on the vine. 
or not, yeah, or not providing what the middle class mm. is is expected in terms of what governments should provide, or you know, frankly, the marketplace should provide, because you know, after all, housing is a market, and it seems the more the government intervenes in the marketplace, the worse it gets. So uh, it's 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 a it's a really difficult set of issues. But I I will tell you, uh, Tom, I have not seen housing in the 35 years that I've been doing this as as a as a professional social researcher, have never seen housing on the list like it is now, and with the group of people that is that that are raising it as an important issue. Pretty much uh, kitchen table issues, affordability, healthcare, housing, all groceries. Uh, those seem to be the issues that everybody's chatting about now. Um, what about Canada? Obviously, a land of immigrants. I mean, you know, I'm first generation Canadian. My mom wasn't born here. Uh, and we all have been very open to, to bringing new people in. But now that attitude is changing. Once we're realizing, my goodness, how did the numbers get from 250 to 350, 350,000 a year? to up over a million people a year, and especially with the, uh, the the tension we're feeling in housing and healthcare. Yeah, well, it's, it's Canada's, one of its responses to the fact that our birth rate has collapsed. Yeah. Uh, we, we just registered in the last couple of weeks the lowest birth rate in Canadian history at 1.3. And for your listeners, just to have enough people being born every year to replace the number of people dying in our population, you need a fertility rate of about 2.1, which is uh, each what would each woman would have in her lifetime today it's 1.3 so in order to deal with all the 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 uh the labor force um uh, shortages that we're having canadian government feels that you know you, you need to solve that situation through immigration but at the volume that uh, of the population that's coming in at the moment nobody was prepared or what that would mean from everything from housing to healthcare through even to administering the process of accepting immigration. So it was, uh, you know, they, they kind of picked a number, but, but they, they didn't really work through what, all, what the implications of that would be. And we're now living through it. And the sad part of all of this, uh, Scott, is that, uh, you know, immigration is something that Canadians are generally pretty united on. Uh, you know, and is a, is a yeah. country um, that uh, has a disproportionate number of immigrants compared to other countries in terms of the percentage of our population. So Canadians are generally pretty good with immigration. But now all of a sudden you hear reasonable people who would normally be ex- uh, accepting of immigration pushing back because of the issues that we're discussing today. Daryl Bricker with the CEO of Ipsos Polling and a majority of Canadians, uh, home ownership becoming just farther and farther and farther out of reach. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. We certainly uh, know uh, how Canadians are having an extremely hard time with affordability right now, whether it's rent, groceries, uh, gas, what have you. Uh, it's pretty tough to uh, to make ends meet. And again, just talking to Daryl Bricker from Ipsos uh, moments ago and saying how people, uh, the majority of Canadians, especially young people, just don't think they're going to get into a home. And it's pretty sad when you think about it uh, that this once Canadian dream, American dream uh, of, you know, doing the right things and getting a house. It's just not there for this generation. And it's a self-inflicted wound, which is 
which is sad. It's it's very sad, and it, it's it's it really is a true failure of government to take care of their people. So when we hear of uh, prime ministers going on vacations that are costing the taxpayers two hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars, or perhaps that of the governor general and uh, and cleaning bills and such, uh, obviously Canadians get a little upset. Uh, and the latest is in regard to a Tofino vacation that uh, that uh, the Trudeau family uh, took. And I guess there's one way to look at it. Uh, it seems to be a favorite place of the prime ministers, and at least it's in Canada. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. And, you know, it's kind of sad when the, the best way to stick up for this type of spending is, well, at least it's in Canada. Right? Because <laughs> yeah. I've heard so yes. many people... See this story that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation first uncovered through an access to information request that Mr. Trudeau's latest vacation to Defino cost taxpayers $287,000. Now, that story came on the heel of, of the uncovering that Trudeau's vacation in Montana over the April long weekend of Easter uh, yeah. cost taxpayers about $230,000. So the best that people can say now is, well, at least that money that was wasted was in Canada. <laughs> Good point. Uh, so how do you how do they account for these costs, Franco? Because we've had these discussions before. And let's be honest, he's a world leader. There's going to be yep. a certain amount of protocol and security and what have you. How much of this is that and and just frivolous uh, spending? Well, OK, let's break it down. So the Tofino trip, the two hundred eighty seven thousand dollars, right? The six figure expense bill to taxpayers. Uh, that's only the starting of it. Because we don't have the cost from the Privy Council office or some of the bureaucrats that would travel uh, with the prime minister to set up secure communications, other things of that nature. Um, we also don't have the bill from the Royal Canadian Air Force. This is just the RCMP bill, security bills. And, and look, I am not a security expert, and I also don't want to dunk on anyone for taking a vacation. I think everyone deserves some time off every now and then. But come on, folks, like there is surely to goodness we can figure out a way to let a prime minister go on vacation that doesn't cost taxpayers six figures or about $200,000 every single time. Because when you add up all the bills, they're a, they're, it's a pretty big chunk of change. This year, Mr. Trudeau has taken three personal vacations, and the total bill to taxpayers is about $678,000 or a nice family home in the suburbs. What about uh, where they're actually staying, whether it's a resort, a hotel, what have you, house? Uh, do they pay for that? Do they pay for their food? What, what do they pay for? Well, that's a good question. And, um, and, and different trips are going to be different, right? Uh, so business trips, you can find out that taxpayers are on the hook for some exorbitant stays, some big time food meals, like when we spoke about the governor general for a $100,000 uh, airplane food expense, or when Trudeau went to New York for that two-day anti-poverty summit and billed taxpayers, what, like $60,000 for hotel rooms. So that's different. Um, the personal vacation days, as far as I can tell, is they're paying for their own lodging. They're paying for their own food. Uh, we're going to file some more access to information requests, but nothing that we got back suggests that taxpayers are on the hook for their food or their hotel. Um, I would assume that they're paying for all of that out of pocket. And uh, do we are to we assume that uh, this would be an average rate for something like security and taking care of a prime minister while he's away? Well, it might be, but that's kind of the problem, right? 
the, the problem is that this is happening all the time, right? Like three trips this year to Tofino, $287,000. Montana, $230,000, where the RCMP bill there was about 200K. Uh, Jamaica, $162,000 bill to the taxpayer. So this is the problem. Look, I am not a security expert. I don't know exactly what goes into the detail to secure a prime minister's vacation. But surely to goodness, we can figure out a way to do this for less than $200,000. But there's another thing that is going on here that I have to bring up. I think most ordinary Canadians, I think this, you know, they, we save up for a big vacation, what, once every few years, if we're lucky. Mr. Trudeau has gone on three. Each have cost taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if Mr. Trudeau just skipped out on one of those vacations this year and instead went to his own cottage retreat paid for by the taxpayer, it's a mansion at Harrington Lake, he would have saved taxpayers what most Canadians make over a couple of years. All right, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, watching the vacations of the Prime Minister as the bills continue to add up. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Hey, thanks for having me on today. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, we know that Hockey Canada has been dealing with some issues over the last while, and they're trying to uh, change things and uh, relaunch their their image and their programs. Uh, changes are coming to hockey rinks across the country as Hockey Canada implements a new policy that bars players from fully undressing in change rooms. Hockey Canada's new policy requires athletes to wear a base layer at all times in the dressing room and to use a bathroom stall or empty dressing room to change in uh, or out of their base layer. It also encourages athletes to wear a minimum attire in the shower, including swimwear, policy applies to officials as well. Uh, the new rules has raised some questions, including why? Uh, have they gone too far? Are they distracting uh, from the real issues? Let's bring in Christy Elaine, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology, St. Thomas University, and here now. Christy, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Christy, obviously Hockey Canada has, has had some issues of late and, and trying to set that straight and, and correct policies where need be and such. Is this a distraction? Are they missing the point? Have they gone too far? What are your thoughts? Um, I think my, as you said in your opening, I think my biggest question is why. So I can think of a few good reasons to implement a policy like this, but I also think it's being implemented ahead of a bunch of policies and um and other issues that are sort of being overlooked. Uh, I'm concerned that Hockey Canada gave no explanation about where this policy came from, about what exactly, what precisely it's expected to address. And, and so, and I want to point out that that athletes can be sexually and physically assaulted um, while wearing clothing. Yeah. So, um, you know, Hockey Canada has been very quiet about where this policy originated in. And I can think of some decent reasons why people might want this policy, how it may potentially be an inclusive policy. But we usually look for community members to bring forward these initiatives. Um, they're not they're not generally implemented, you know, in, in systems like this from a top down perspective. They usually originate in discussions with community members. 
And I'm not sure why Hockey Canada wouldn't tell us which community members asked for this or why they chose to implement this, especially given everything else that's going on at Hockey Canada. We'd like to see, you know, real um, a real effort to address a culture change in hockey. I'm not sure why this is the first issue that they put out. Uh, is this creating more questions than it is answering? Yeah, I think that's that's really the thing. I mean, base layers might make the space more inclusive for some folks, but but we just don't know why this was put in place. And and you know, hockey has true problems: sexual violence, physical mm-hmm. violence amongst players, uh, histories of not dealing with uh, head injuries very well, um, systemic racism, sexism homophobia, discrimination, classism. Um, So I'd like to see them take a really proactive stance in addressing these issues. These are known problems throughout throughout hockey in Canada and and things that we want to see them be really active in in making change to make the locker room space a truly uh, safe space for, for all its athletes. And so, you know, base layers might be one small step. I can't say because we don't know what community brought forward this initiative, if any, but it can only be one small step in addressing this problem. And it, it shouldn't, um, it shouldn't distract us from other large scale systemic issues that, that people have been bringing forward for decades. So we don't know if anybody even asked for this, if this was ever a concern. That's correct. Hockey Canada has said nothing about why it's implemented this change. And I think it's really hard for us to speculate whether this is a good policy or bad policy when we don't even know what issues this base layer policy is expected to deal with. It sounds like non-community members uh, making a decision for the community. That's what it sounds like to me as well, or that they're making, I mean, yes, I agree. That's what, that's what I think has happened here without knowing for sure. I mean, it's really up to Hockey Canada to, to explain why it's making these decisions and especially an organization like Hockey Canada, that's been charged with not being very transparent. It's really shocking that one of their first big policy initiatives on this new board comes with exactly the same lack of transparency that we've seen from this organization. Yeah, that was just my word too, Christy, was transparent. You think they'd be a little bit more transparent on how they arrive at these conclusions to ver- therefore better explain a policy. And here's what we're doing now moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it would also make, I think, parents and athletes, coaches more comfortable with the policy if they have an, an understanding of what it's trying to address. I mean, also, if we if it's trying to address a real issue, I mean, clothing is really not the issue. Clothing is masking other kinds of issues, whether they be discrimination, uh, hazing, abuse. We can't actually forthrightly in any real meaningful way address these issues if we don't even know what issues this policy is expected to address. Uh, so uh, rather uh, over and above this issue of, of what you wear in the change room, it, it sounds like we need to really dig deeper in how Hockey Canada arrives at this vision, at this focus, at, as a direction to go in. So uh, it's less about what we have to wear in the change room and more like, what are you guys doing? Like, who's who's h- how are you how are you arriving at this and, and changing the perception that people have? Yeah, and not just perception. Uh, Hockey Canada is supposed to be charged with implementing yeah. a full-scale culture change based on, you know, uh, transparency, on openness, and on dealing with systemic issues that are long-standing. 
it has to do that in in a forthright way. It has to do that in conversation. Its press releases cannot be opaque and and covering up, you know, these covering up whatever issue this this policy is expected to address, of which I can't even speculate. Christy Elaine with us, Associate Professor, Department of Sociology, St. Thomas University. Changes coming to Hockey Canada and the rinks across the country, uh, including barring players from fully undressing in change rooms. Christy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. General Motors and the union represented the Canadian auto workers have reached a tentative contract agreement, which is good news because when the day started, it looked like that was not going to happen, which was a bit of a surprise considering uh, this was supposed to be a uh, a template deal from the Ford agreement uh, that that was uh, out just a while ago and got them signed up. So what happened? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder professor DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, and here now from Copenhagen, Denmark, I understand. Marvin, are you in Copenhagen? I am indeed. You'll have to have a Carlsberg for us. (laughs) Well, today I was actually in Malmo, Sweden, investigating that town, and tomorrow I'm going to go to Helsingor, which is the fictitious site of Hamlet. So I'm still seeing the country. Very nice. All right. Your thoughts on where we are with this auto workers uh, uh, contract deal. It seemed that it would, this was going to be easy peasy because they would just mirror what Ford had done. And then the, the day started with some grumblings that were going to look like a strike. And then all of a sudden uh, we have a tentative deal. What's happened here? Right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, uh, as you know, Unifor does what they call template negotiating. They go to they pick a company that they think is going to give them the best deal. And they negotiate there first. And that was Ford. That was a deal that got approved. Remember, only 54% of people voted for it. But that then became the template. They thought GM was going to be tougher. And they think Stellantis, the people who make Jeep and Chrysler products, are going to be tougher still. So in the United States, of course, they're all on strike for GM and Stellantis. And the talks with GM were were not going well. So uh, in the last 24 hours, (laughs) <laughs> they said, well, if that's the way you feel about it, GM, we're going to stop all the production. And in particular, one of the assembly plants they were targeting makes a very profitable uh, product for GM. That's the trucks that they make. Uh, surprising, yes, that it took less than 24 hours. I think it was more like 12 when GM said, OK, OK, we give up. We'll agree to this deal. I think that's marvelous news for the workers. I am a little surprised that maybe they didn't do the same thing they did with Ford, which was extend the talks. Uh, Remember with Ford, they said, we're going to go out on a strike. Oh, wait a minute. Some things have broken. We're going to hold off for 24 hours. Could have done the same thing with GM, but maybe they got tougher language from GM. But now it's more or less the same. And we kind of know what that means. For the workers, it means a wage increase of around 20 to 25%, whether you are semi-skilled or fully skilled. Um, We're going to see cost of living increases reintroduced over the three-year contract. There's going to be some things with the pension, including ultimately moving people back to a defined benefit plan from a defined contribution plan. And there are some other guarantees around investment in electric vehicles, what have you. It's a wonderful deal for the country. I think it's a great deal for the workers. GM, I don't think had many choices in this because they've also been generating record profits. Are you surprised they've moved back on the pensions, especially when we thought that went the way of the dodo bird? 
Yeah, I, I am. Now, uh, presumably the union never gave up on the idea, so they always viewed the move to define benefit as a temporary move, or define, move to define contribution as a temporary move. They have wanted to go back to define benefit, and the reason is simple. In, in define contribution, the company contributes money, you contribute money, but you manage the fund. Well, most people don't have a pretty good understanding of how to manage money, and so they would much rather uh, see it go someplace else. The company, on the other hand, didn't like being obligated for that. Remember mm -hmm. the pension shortfalls that we saw once upon a time quite frequently, and the world is in a different place now, and I guess the, the uh, employer, in this case GM, feels that they can take that risk on. We're not going to know all those details until 2025. That's the third year of the three-year deal. But nonetheless, again, I think it's great news for workers because most of them don't really know how to invest their money well. Uh, we, we talked about, of course, the first deal with Ford, then that's supposed to be the template for the others. What if these deals or do these deals get sweeter as they go and therefore Ford says, well, wait a sec, uh, you know, when we started out, we didn't have that and we want to top up now. Right. Well, that, that's a good question. And I'm also going to point out that this is all going on while in the United States, all three com car companies are facing strikes. I think this might be one of the reasons why Ford Canada workers only gave a 54% endorsement because they're watching an eye south of the border. First time in many, many years that both contracts have come due at the same time. Now, in the United States, people are negotiating for a four-year deal. This is a three-year deal. For uh, the, the, uh, the union down there, United Auto Workers, has been asking for a much bigger pay increase. I think something on the order of 40 to 45 percent over four years. This is going to be somewhere between 25 and 30 percent over three years. So I, I can see why it didn't get a ringing endorsement. And it'll be very interesting to me. I think there's the what if. What if the GM Canada workers don't uh, endorse this deal? This is the best GM can do. It's recommended by your union leadership. What if the GM workers reject it? I don't think they will, but I'm also not expecting it to be an overwhelming vote of support either. Uh, what about the the pension you said, it, or sorry, not the pension, the, the, uh, uh, the wages, that this is quite a good deal for them over the three years of it? Well, it starts big. You know, the very first year is a 10% increase. And, and given the inflation we've seen over the last year, that's, that's to be expected. And the good news from the economy standpoint is that 2% uh, increase in year two, 3% increase in year three. So on its own, those are not inflationary increases. This has been the worry of the Bank of Canada. Would people start saying, I want 10% a year every year for the next three years? Oh, God, yeah. we're going to bake in these high inflation rates. Now, yeah. there is a cost of living adjustment, and that gives them a guarantee. If, for instance, inflation doesn't come back down, then you add uh, that to their to their increase. It could be worth a lot more. So they've got both sides of this covered. Um, so I, I mean, again, I think it's a good deal. I thought it was a good deal at Ford. I think it's a good deal for GM. And now the other question is when this gets voted on, and they haven't given a date yet, but they like to normally do this on a weekend. So this coming weekend. Then last but not least, Stellantis. By the way, one other quick thing, Scott. Uh, United Auto Workers used to do the exact same kind of deal, this what they call template negotiating. But this year, with a new president of the United Auto Workers, they threw that out and said, we're going to deal with all three of you at the same time. If Canada can get through this with very little labor discord, in other words, very few strikes, and meanwhile, the United States, I believe we're now on day 23 of the strikes down there, it, it, it's an interesting observation. I'm not just quite sure what it all means.
How or will the strikes that are down in the United States, obviously a different way of doing things now, at what point does that start uh, affecting the supply chains up here? Well, it, it could, especially if they broaden. Now, so far in the United States, what they've targeted is three assembly plants. Uh, so these are more plants that assemble final vehicles. And then they've targeted some parts distribution centers, but those are parts destined for dealerships, not destined for uh, other places. And so far, the UAW has said, we're not looking to expand it. If they don't expand it, then it probably shouldn't affect us north of the border. Now in Canada, when Unifor called the GM strike, it was to shut down all three Canadian plants and that could have had immediate repercussions south of the border. However, 12 hours after calling it, it's been Mm. over. So we're not going to affect them. And so far their work is not affecting us. Will the U.S. Uh, learn something from the way Canada's making this happen, or is it just a different bear? Yeah, I, I wish I could say I thought they were going to learn something from us. Americans have a wonderful um, uh, a narrow focus. They, they sort of believe the world revolves around them, and they don't really care what the rest of the world does. If I was that new president of the UAW, I would be keeping an eye over my shoulder and saying, look, now they've got two deals in Canada, and we're all out on strike. Maybe they, maybe we should be following that template uh, bargaining that works so well in other places. Don't know, new president. This is his chance to stretch his wings and fly. And keep in mind that uh, he's probably reacting to a few years of the Donald Trump presidency as well. So all of this uh, doesn't bode well south of the border. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, solving uh, strikes and uh, getting deals done with General Motors and then Stellantis. And Marvin with us from Denmark. Marvin, enjoy the time. Thank you so much for yours. Much appreciated. Anytime. Happy to help out. Uh, obviously, uh, the outbreak of war between Hamas and Israel over the course of the weekend, uh, some sh- just absolutely terrifying, shocking images uh, that we're hearing and stories of uh, what has transpired over the last 70, uh, 72 hours or so. Uh, what is the world reaction and how do you move forward for something like this? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto and here now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott, although I've been watching events in Israel with mounting concerns for the last few days. Uh, Why is this happening now, Jack? Uh, Did we see this coming? Apparently nobody did, not even Israeli intelligence, which is very good. I think part of this is that uh, Israel was uh, distracted by uh, the possibility of incursions on the West Bank rather than Gaza. Uh, the world is preoccupied with uh, with Ukraine. Uh, Hamas saw its chance to act. It's also hoping to uh, derail a possible uh, Saudi-Israeli peace deal by uh, by forcing uh, forcing the Saudis to uh, to back them in a conflict uh, with the uh, opinion of the Arab Street behind them. So that explains uh, why this is happening. But we have to look at the broader context. Both Hamas in uh, Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon are sponsored and armed by Iran. They wouldn't be doing this without Iran at least giving them the green light. And Iran is a Russian client state. It wouldn't give a green light unless it had a green light from Putin. So this is more giant distraction on the big stage? In part, yes. Putin would like nothing better than to distract Western attention with conflict uh, in another area. And also, he'd like to see the U.S. having to uh, 
deal with the instability in another part of the world. What does this mean for Ukraine and, and the focus there? Uh, well, it, uh, if, we're, if, if our leaders are sensible, it won't distract from the need to keep supplying Ukraine. I mean, there's no, re- there's no reason in principle we can't back Ukraine in one conflict and Israel in another. Where does this leave Israel moving forward? Uh, well, that, uh, that depends on, in part on what others do. My concern is that uh, Israel is in, is, is that Israel may not be given enough time by others to uh, finish the war. I mean, as David Frum observed, Hamas started the war. Israel has to finish it. And that means it has to be given enough time to destroy Hamas. What does that entail? What does that mean for the Gaza Strip? If we're, uh, if we're fortunate, this can be accomplished mainly through uh, surgical airstrikes, although they're not all that surgical when dealing with an enemy who hides uh, behind his, en- his, his own population, using them as human shields. If that's not as, uh, as effective as one would hope, then it could mean a, 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 an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza, which would be bloody, which would be costly. I mean, it's a very built-up urban area. And we've known since the Battle of Stalingrad that battles in those uh, in those types of environments are costly and bloody. What about the hostages, Jack, and 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 how they can be used in all of this? Uh, some of them have already been uh, been killed, it would seem, and uh, Hamas hopes to use them as leverage. They've they've already announced publicly that if Israel if Israel uses launches airstrikes without uh, without warning, uh, hostages will pay the price. Uh, that has to be taken seriously. But on the other hand, Israel has a policy of so-called roof knocking, of telegraphing its attacks before they come so that uh, innocent civilians can uh, can leave the target area. Uh, do we have any advice? We don't know. Do we have any numbers on on hostages or how many there may be taken? We know that at least 100 have been taken. We don't have uh, an upper limit yet. And I'm afraid any any numbers at this stage are somewhat speculative. What does this mean for Canadians or or other countries, allies that have citizens at both side on both sides of this conflict? Uh, it means the uh, the domestic diaspora politics could get tricky, and we already saw that yesterday with uh, demonstrations on both sides uh, in Toronto. How do you how do you explain to some who may not know the history here of how there can be celebrations here in Canada? Well, there are people, in my view, profoundly misguided who are so fixated on what they see as Israel's crimes that they're willing to excuse the far greater crimes of Hamas. I think that's regrettable, but it's a fact of life. What about other allies on this? Where, where, where do they stand? Uh, how are they going to help in this conflict? Well, we did see the statement from the, uh, the G5, uh, Japan and Canada were apparently not invited to sign, but gave full-throated backing to Israel. Uh, the statements by uh, Trudeau and Biden have been absolutely solid. And Biden did one very important thing and that is deploying American naval and air assets in the region in order to uh, send a warning signal to anyone who's tempted to escalate, like Iran, like Hezbollah. You said uh, they need to be able to, Israel needs to be able to finish this war. What does that mean? How long does that take? Uh, it could take months. So we need, to, we need to settle in and be prepared for a very bloody conflict.
I wish there were, there were an alternative to that, but I don't see one. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, what's going on with economic development? Uh, Hamilton, always a booming city. Time to look at some of the big news of economic development in Hamilton. Joined by Doug LaFranco of AAG Tailored Cutting Solutions. AAG has major customers, including NASA, Tesla, Boeing, and Airbus, but also works with a strong network of local businesses and has grown to represent the city of Hamilton to a global audience. AAG is just celebrated the grand opening of a new 180 8,000 square foot global headquarters in Flamborough on the uh, business facility there, which broke ground in July of 2022. $25 million investment employs just over 100 people with plans to grow. To talk more of all of this, Doug LaFranco with us, CEO of AAG Tailored Cutting Solutions and here now. Doug, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you, Scott. Thanks so for having what, us. What does AAG Tailored Cutting Solutions do? We design and build um, a series of uh, CNC router and water jet solutions. And what does that mean? So our products cut things. So we've got uh, for the routers, for example, the people in Hamilton may associate it with big machining centers, if you will. And this is sort of a table that's got a big machining. It is a big machining center. So Mm -hmm. it does larger platform flat materials. And why is this area great for what you are doing? Why did you choose the area you choose, Flamborough? You know, Flamborough is a, is a growing area. Um, we're in a new development there, as you know, uh, with Stryker and the likes of Lincoln. And uh, the, the, the ability to build a custom, state-of-the-art building that we can expand into is what really drove us. And our, some of our employees are from, uh, from Hamilton area. And uh, there's a large population there, and we're looking for more employees as we as we grow into our new facility. Uh, so this is actually manufacturing the equipment that cuts these products. Is that accurate? That's that's correct. We cut all kinds of materials, anything from aluminums to plastics to wood. Sign makers. Uh, anybody listening to the show, that's a sign maker would know us best. So uh, some may find it surprising that this type of business is picking up again here. Is that is that short-sighted? No, I don't think so. It's uh, When we say it's picking up again, it goes through, of course, the economy goes through cycles, but these machines mm. are, with the new materials that are coming out, um, are cutting more and more different products. Like, for example, the whole building that we're in, the materials, all the facing plant panels on, uh, on our building were cut by a uh, company that uh, uses our machine. There you go. Well, there's full circle right there. Uh, NASA, Tesla, Boeing, Airbus, but also locally. How, what do you gain from uh, the local area as far as business? I think, uh, you know, Hamilton's, uh, Hamilton's historically been a very industrial area, industrialized mm. area. I and mean, there are a lot of great things that have come out of Hamilton and, uh, so we expect to continue to, to push through that. We, we actually were previously in Burlington, so we weren't too far from Hamilton, and we have a lot of customers out in Hamilton. 
Um, so we expect to continue to develop in that area as uh, Hamilton grows out. Uh, is it difficult for you to find help, whether it's skilled, uh, general labor, whatever, what have you? How hard is it? How difficult has it been you to, uh, been for you to fill positions? It, it is tough. It's tough these days. We find that uh, especially uh, skilled labor in particular, which is probably about most of what we have in our building, um, anything from people that assemble electrical components to people that uh, do machining on our own machines, etc., um, finding those people is pretty tough. As we get towards uh, Hamilton, that's where the skilled labor comes in. So you're always looking for future employees, I'm guessing. Absolutely. There's always room for good employees. And if people are interested, where do they go? They can come to, they can go to our website, uh, either AAG or uh, Axis, uh, as it's otherwise known as uh, in the Ontario region. Does and bringing... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and then there's an apply button there. So as far as other businesses that are similar to yours or uh, part of the supply chain rippling effect of this, uh, does this grow, does this grow other types of industries like this or that supply you in this area? Um, I would say yes, uh, to a certain extent. We've got, for example, all the materials like our, our our deck themselves, all the aluminum comes out of the region. Um, our steel product comes from probably mostly in the in, in the Canadian uh, in the southwestern corridor, I would say, of Ontario. All our steel and is put together locally by Mennonites as well. The, the base frames. Doug LaFranco with us, CEO of AAG Tailored Cutting Solutions, uh, opened their giant 108,000-square-foot facility in Flamborough and another Hamilton success story. Doug, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Uh, The Hamilton Chamber of Commerce is going to be hosting a summit, and this is pretty cool, in hopes of sparking conversations around the future of the city's nighttime economy. Now, many people just probably think an economy is an economy and a day and you sleep. But no, uh, in any city, it has a vibrant nighttime economy, a nightlife, something going on, people doing things. Except, of course, if maybe if you live in Ottawa, they're struggling with this a little bit. Uh, and you can see why something like this would be completely advantageous, especially when you're seeing um, the redevelopment of Hamilton with the Hamilton City Center, the LRT, and obviously the refurbishment of the First Ontario Center all playing into this. Let's bring in Greg Dunnett, CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and here now. Greg, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I doing today. So far, so good. So uh, many people might be uh, might think this is a little odd or too specific. But what is a a city's nighttime economy? What, what exactly are you talking about here, Greg? This is the event today, and so I can answer this question a lot better than I could have uh, this morning. But um, the the premise of it, and we had Shane Shapiro, and who's actually written a book on the subject, and, and so Shane spoke specifically to that idea that you know so much of what we need to transform our community is to build it around and have secondary economy. So you've got your daytime economy, you've got your traditional business economy, and that's historically how we've built our cities. But now as we come out of the pandemic and we've got this new incredible opportunity as our downtown transforms and as our whole city transforms to kind of reimagine and create secondary economic impacts. And one of those great opportunities is 
in the nighttime. So think about with the the first Ontario Centre renovation, with the incredible culinary scene we have, with the great arts and culture scene, bringing that all together and actually, you know, having strategies and having policy developed that supports it. And what Shane kind of spoke to were all those things that come with it about making sure your transportation network is integrating everything together. And taking the arena and not just hosting uh, sports events, but turning it into a, a major music hub and bringing in major concerts. Uh, and we had Tom Story from OVG come in and speak to that. Uh, we also had speakers come in and speak to that transportation network and best practices. And so we actually looked at what's happened in Montreal and they've made these major steps in kind of creating a second economy that supports the, the downtown. And this, building around your nightlife and making sure you have strategies and plans to uh, support and create a, a vibrant city that augments and increase new business opportunities. Uh, I can think of one city that didn't do very well when it comes to this, and that is the city of Ottawa. I remember visiting there many years ago and, and every so often get back there, and they literally roll up the sidewalks at 5 o'clock at night, and obviously with it being a, a government town and such, and now a lot of those people working from home, they're really struggling to bring people back downtown. How important is it to have that vibrant economy uh, downtown? It's imperative. And I think we have this incredible opportunity before us. And when you think about the renaissance of Hamilton's downtown over the last 10, 15 years, it really is that arts and cultural scene that have kind of created that spark that, uh, that have moved it forward. So there is a current risk factor as those major projects that you kind of led with, as we have to support those businesses in the short term. And I think our, our team at City Hall are actually doing a very good job of creating new initiatives to help support the those businesses. So as we come out of that trans, this transformative period we're going through, it's it's a great nightlife. And I know even you know us at the chamber, it's very important to us. We've added we've added a musical component to our Hamilton Day programming to not just have it be on Saturday, November fourth, but we want music integration to happen. You look at great opportunities that we're starting to draw into our city. Uh, like the Grey Cup, and it's making sure that people can mm. come into the city, watch this world-class sporting event. Again, the Grey Cup and the Grey Cup Festival is Canada's largest annual sporting event, hosting that, but making sure people can come into the city, enjoy it. They have the hotel rooms they need to enjoy it, and they 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 leave our city speaking positively of it and wanting to come back. And I think that's why it's so imperative for us to create that create that interconnectivity and that's a lot of what today was about was connecting and making sure the right people are in the room and talking to each other and sparking some of those ideas about new ways to do things maybe not that we were doing traditionally uh, both as a historical community model but also just coming out of the pandemic and how the uh, modus operandi has changed changed around around how you operate as a city. I think the Grey Cup's a great example of that because at one time people would say, well, you know, the Grey Cup's coming to the town and they bring the whole circus, so we can't do anything else uh, uh, on that weekend because that's geared specifically towards this. And now you hear with the Grey Cup festivities, they've woven in the Santa Claus Parade to it. They've got a series of concerts. they got a super crawl element and around the bay. And that is, to me, which is really exciting because once you get all these people here, you got all this stuff going on. You know, it's a great example of that connecting people and, and celebrating yeah. the best of what our community is about. 
because now you may come back and run in the around the bay race and or mm. come back into town for super crawl and you know if we do it right you not only come back but you bring your friends so now we're creating another round of economic impact out of these events so that was really the exciting thing about today and you know the the different difference in what you know music is just so integrated through the entire uh process and you know i think that's the other thing the great cup is looking at but even was every speaker was speaking about and thomas story spoke about where OVG is going to take the arena going forward is these major events that bring in tens of thousands of people and they come in from outside our community they spend there and they go to the show and then if there's secondary opportunities to enjoy themselves they'll do so mm -hmm. because they're in the community they're looking to enjoy it yep. so that that was the purpose of tonight and uh, it went incredibly well, and, and we're looking forward to doing it again next year and continuing that discussion about how we push our community forward. How did the global pandemic kind of jerk a lot of this stuff loose? I remember, uh, you know, traveling to Europe years ago and thinking, man, like these cities are alive at midnight, uh, you know, at midnight. People are eating. People are going out and doing things and, and in cafes and in little parks and, and things like that. And and it seems, you know, we can't do any of that here because there's too much this or too much that. or And it seems the pandemic has kind of opened up a little bit more regulation and a little bit more free thinking. I think even if you look at the way that we opened up the patios on, on the streets yeah. during the pandemic, right? That was another example of getting creative and, and creating new support systems that uh, adapted to the, the current situation. I, I think I think part of it was was we all it further reinforced how important being social beings are. And I think we all missed out on those concerts for a few years and we all want to go out and enjoy it and be a part. There is that there is that energy that a, a an event creates that you really can't get anywhere else um and so i think the pandemic kind of sparked it it also the pandemic has changed that you know you, you spoke to it earlier too we have to reimagine how our how our downtowns function because not everybody is and spoke to ottawa about this but it's happening everywhere not everybody has gone back to the office full time so mm. the the impact to the economy during the daytime has been impacted you have to augment it with new ideas and that's exactly what a nighttime economy is it's about helping helping create those secondary economic impacts. Greg Dunnett with us, CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, hosting a summit on the future of the city's nighttime economy, 24-7. It's going to rock all the time. Greg, thank you for the time. Good luck. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you excited that the hockey season starts tonight? Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, there's always, no matter who you cheer for, there's always wonderful optimism when your team has undefeated. Or are you just upset because the baseball season's over for our, our Blue Jays? Uh, you know what? It's, uh, let, let's have a fresh start. The way the Jays season ended was, uh, you know, unpleasant. And so uh, let's have a fresh start and we'll see. Although I will say this, and I, I think I may have said the exact same thing last year and possibly even the year before. I don't think for Leaf fans, despite whatever optimism they have for changes that have been made, I don't think that there are many Leaf fans that give a rat's patootie what happens between now and April. The only thing that matters is the playoffs. Get in mm, and mm. then like, who cares? Another regular season. If Austin Matthews gets 80 goals this year, 
Does anybody who is a Leaf fan really care? All we care about, all they care about is what are you going to do when the playoffs roll around and how are you not going to fail this time? Period. And on that note, uh, as with the CFL, everybody kind of makes the playoffs, sort of, kind of like. Half, yeah. What do you you think of Hamilton's season this year and where we are now? So I I like Hamilton's chances going forward. I mean, yes, they have to, um, yes, you have to probably play the Argos unless, uh, something happens. Well, unless you lose to the Alouettes. Well, at this point, um, you know, I like the Ticats chances against the Alouettes, whether you're playing at home or on the road. However, uh, and, and look, and it would be fantastic if somehow Hamilton could get back to the Grey Cup since we are hosting this year. That Mm. is the ultimate make it a party situation to have the home team in the game. I mean, the, the worst case scenario probably is to have the Argos playing in the Grey Cup in your backyard. That would be, yeah, uh, that's that would gonna, be horrible. That's gonna, However, that's going to sting. I will say this, and, and we can talk about this more at the end of the season and after everything is done. I still hate the way the schedule and the standings work in the CFL because there are teams, including unfortunately the Ticats, who were awful in the first half of the year. And what we've seen yeah. is the first half of the year is entirely absolutely fully meaningless, meaningless. If you buy a ticket to a game in the first half of the year, you are going to basically a glorified preseason game. It meant nothing. I look, I love the way they're playing now. They're playing great. Mm -hmm. But what does this then say about what July, August, even the beginning of September really means? All right. Uh, you know, nothing left to talk about, but Doug Ford and the green belt, man, we've like checking the boxes off left, right, and center here. What are your thoughts that now the RCMP is going to look into, uh, uh, well, we don't really know what they're going to look into. They're not going to really tell us too much mm. of it until it's, it's, uh, at the completion point. But, um, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not sure what you can investigate of something that you didn't do other than the process was wrong, but clearly there's enough evidence there that they feel there's an investigation. Well, if they investigate with as much vigor as they did, say, SNC-Lavalin, Doug Ford has nothing to concern himself with. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And and this is, this is, uh, this is going to be a problem. Honestly, a political issue is if they were to come back and say, oh, look, we found all this that's gone wrong. I think there's going to be an awful lot of people around the country not just in Ontario, who will say, wait a second, all those liberal scandals that didn't get investigated or that you didn't find anything, nothing, nothing was found on any of the federal government things. And yet here you find one, it's a political bit of a conundrum for them. It could end up being a political situation, which shouldn't be the case with any kind of law enforcement, but I just wonder if it's going to be. And you have to wonder where it's going, considering it all stopped. So, you you know, again, it reminds me of the Tragically Hip song, Nobody Cares About Something You Didn't Do. But again, if some deals were made, and those are illegal, but if none of this goes through, I'm not sure what what we're looking for. And, And again, I think what really ticks me off in all of this and, and believe me, if, if they did something wrong, they should be caught. They should be, um, uh, dealt with to the full extent of the law. But here it is again, we're talking about the green belt instead of something that really concerns 
every Ontarian and that's affordability, uh, getting a roof over your head, all of that stuff. Like, I, I just can't believe how much time we spend arguing about this issue. There, there are a lot of things that, uh, that get argued about that take on, um, political sides or that, that, that become political, whether they were to begin with or not. Uh, this is clearly one of them. Um, you know, there, there's another one, Scott, another question that I've been reading people having today, which is about the situation that's going on with Israel and people saying, wait a second, yeah. don't we have hate laws in this country? And surely, mm. surely demonstrations in favor of a terrorist attack rise to the level of breaking our hate laws, don't they? But nothing has happened. And yet other things get charged with hate crimes and you say, all right, I, I guess I can sort of see that, but where is the continuity? Where's the consistency? And I've read a ton of people today saying, how do you possibly not suggest that celebrating children being beheaded and women being raped in the streets is not equal hatred. It's, it's so many, you, you start putting politics into stuff and whether it's political or not, you end up with these impossible situations that, that become political and they probably shouldn't be. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one comes from Frank. With respect to Trudeau's statement, every leader offers condolences and declares how despicable uh, and uh, is the murderous actions in Israel. What leaves me despondent is saying is him saying that this must not be accepted and has got to end in Canada. Excuse me, it's not like warning a 10-year-old that their allowance is about to be compromised. Offer condolences and leave it at that, because there's nothing much Canada can do. Keep right, except to pass.